Hey listeners, I'm Robbie and this is The Breakdown. This week, I'm bringing you my conversation with casting director Lauren Port. Lauren was a casting director in New York for many years with Caporelliotis Casting, but is now the resident casting director at the Goodman Theatre in Chicago. Lauren's Broadway credits include Junk, Meteor Shower, A Doll's House Part 2, The Front Page, It's Only a Play, Disgraced, Fish in the Dark, Holla If You Hear Me, The Trip to Bountiful, Grace, Death of a Salesman, Seminar, Stick Fly, Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo, Lend Me a Tenor, and Fences, as well as numerous off-Broadway and regional theater credits. Television credits include New Amsterdam, American Odyssey, The Pilot of How to Get Away with Murder, among many others. Like so many other guests on the podcast, Lauren started as an actor and talks about the difficult decision to change career fields. I think Lauren's story of how she got to where she is, from casting apprentice to intern to associate to award-winning Broadway and television casting director, is important for anyone to hear who's going into casting. Lauren also had so many important tips for actors, especially when she talks about preparation. Now, we hear that word thrown around a lot, but what does it really mean? Lauren's answer was especially clear, and I feel like all of our auditions will be better because of it. I truly enjoyed my time with Lauren. We went to school together, and it was great to catch up and pick her brain. Remember, if you like what you hear, please take a second to subscribe, rate, and review. I know you hear that a lot, but for a new podcast, it makes a world of difference. Now, without further ado, my conversation with Lauren Port. Lauren Port. Hi. Thank you for being on my podcast. You're so welcome. Full disclosure, Lauren and I went to school together. But I'm much older than you. I wouldn't say much older. I just think that... Enough. I'm old enough. You you are more intelligent in the ways of the world now. I'm much more mature. Yeah. Um, so, right. <laughs> Let's just jump into it. I just want to know what you do on a daily basis, like what your what your day is like, the kind of stuff that you're working on right now, uh, what's going through your office, and maybe like what your day is like tomorrow or something. Um, there's no real typical day, but things that happen on a daily basis depending on where we're at within the process of any given project will include making idea lists, checking actors' avails, um, going through breakdowns, cutting sides, talking to agents and managers, conference calls with creative teams, uh, watching self-tapes. Um, a lot of communication between a lot of different people yes. in the business. Yep. Um, was that all that was in that question? There were more Is there things. anything you can tell us right now that you're working on oh. specifically? Uh, yes, in this exact moment, we're working on um, the next show for Atlantic Stage 2, which is a new play by Lauren Yee called The Great Leap that I'm casting. Um, a new play by Anna Ziegler for The Old Globe love called Anna The Wanderer. Wanderers. Yes, love her too. I did her play last match, the world premiere at The I Old saw Globe. That. Um, we took half my cast to the roundabout, but I didn't get credit. It's okay. Um, I saw a reading of The Wanderers, and it's... You did? Yes. Oh, yeah. It's good. We were supposed to go to that reading, but... Yeah. We couldn't make it. We cast that reading. It's really good. It's a very good play. And your cast was amazing. The woman that played the mother, the the Jew... Yes. Elise Keebler. She was, like, the only non-famous person in it. I mean, like, well-known. She was incredible. Yeah. 
so we're working on the Wanderers. We're working on Our Lady of 121st Street by Stephen L. Girgis at the Signature. We are casting understudies for Boys in the Band on Broadway and Three Tall Women. Um, uh, I cast for City Theater in Pittsburgh, and I'm working on their next show, which is called The White Chip, um, that Cheryl Caller is directing. And so is it just you and David in the office that yes. are casting directors? Yes, and we have an assistant. <clears throat> and do you and David work on projects together, or do like you have a project and David has a project? Both. Um, we do a lot together. Dave also casts for MTC, and all of that stays separate. So even though Capriolis casting is billed on those projects. MTC has their own in-house casting department, and so he works, he keeps that stuff separate from our office for the most part. Um, so those things he works on alone. There are certain projects within Caporaliotis Casting that I do alone or that I spearhead. Um, usually if I have a prior relationship with a director or depending on what, what the account is, Atlantic Stage 2 is something that I pretty much do now on my own, um, sometimes for the Old Globe, we will alternate which one of us is running point on a show. Um, but for the most part, we do almost everything else together. Um, I also just, I freelance for a couple other um, theaters and companies, and that is just me on my own independently, even though I'm full-time at the office. Cool. That yes. sounds busy. It sounds like you're doing it's a lot. It's very busy. <clears throat> so it's a nice luxury uh, yes. to be able to do freelance work in the office. Yeah. I hope you're not going to hear Stout like chomping on her toy. We probably are hearing Stout, which is Lauren's adorable Kavaku. Yep. Uh, please follow Stout yep. at Stout underscore the underscore Kavaku. She's a licensed. She and I are a licensed therapy animal team, and she also has two agents and has booked. Three jobs. <laughs> she was edited out of her Target National commercial. Uh, you know what? Sometimes that happens. We'll have to have Stout on the podcast next time. Yeah. Everyone in this house earns their keep, including the animals. Uh, perfect. <laughs> so, okay, let's back up. So, yeah. I know you grew up in Chicago. Uh-huh. Uh, and I know you went to Syracuse University, because I did. But uh -huh. I want you to talk about, you were a performer and... Yes. Um, and just talk about maybe why you started performing and then why you decided to go to Syracuse and then how you learned that casting was a career and a profession and the choice to move from an actor to a casting director. So um, I grew up in Chicago and actually my first sort of foray into the arts was like I took ballet when I was a little kid, but I was actually very good at it and was very, very tall and tall for my age and very like sickly thin um so I had like a ballet dancer's body like I was on point when I was like 10 or 11 wow. um and so I thought I wanted to be a ballet dancer um and long story short I went through puberty um my body was no longer a dancer body and I also was not interested in the amount of time that I would have to dedicate to actually doing it um, my ballet teacher told me what it would be and I was just really not interested in it. So when I was in junior high, I want to say, I auditioned for the play, like the one play, the musical, and 
uh, my junior high was fifth through eighth grade, and my mom like braced me for the like, you know, you're you're in fifth grade, and you're probably if it's okay if you don't get a bar. And I got a speaking role, which is like really big Huge. deal. Huge booked it. Um, and it just you know I just loved it. I I have a really big personality, and um, I was always like uh, better at. Uh, the arts than the sciences and I'm much more verbal than nonverbal in every aspect of my life. So, um, I really like through junior high, I never did like, I never did community theater. I was never one of those kids that did like, I didn't go to theater camp. I didn't do like, I, I did like kind of very average suburban, like I had a very average suburban childhood. Like I went to day camp and then I went to overnight camp. Like I didn't, um, but when I got to high school, my public high school in the suburbs of Chicago had a very, had an amazing theater department. And they did seven shows a year. They had three theaters. What? There was a thespian society. There was like a playwriting club. I mean, it was like intense. And there were tons of electives that you could take. So I, like by my senior year, I was the president of both the thespian society and the playwriting club. Um... And, like, I did, I just, like, was in it. So, I wanted to, I really wanted to pursue it. It was the only thing that, like, excited me when I thought about going to college. And um, my dad was like, okay, you can do that, but then you're going to support yourself through college. Like, I'm not going to, I don't, I don't support that. You're just not, that's not a sustainable degree. Blah, blah, blah. He saw me play Aunt Eller. In Oklahoma, <laughs> and he changed his mind. The Palmer and the Cowman should be friends. Oh, the Palmer and the Cowman should be friends. Oh, one man likes to push a plow, the other likes to chase a cow, but that's no reason why they can't be friends. Wow. So I, I applied to college and I auditioned um, for BFA acting programs. And I got into Syracuse, and I was also um, waitlisted at DePaul in Chicago. And DePaul has a very, or at the time they did, I mean, this is a long time ago now, they had a cut system, and it was, like, black and white. Like, they went from 50 to 25 freshmen from the beginning of freshman year at the end. Wow. And although Syracuse claimed they didn't have a cut system, and they disguised it by an evaluation, which is still a cut system, um... I visited the campus, and I mean, I knew DePaul, and I had been around DePaul because I grew up in Chicago, so um, I knew I knew exactly what that would be, and I visited Syracuse, like, on an accepted students weekend, and I sat in on a class and toured the campus, and it happened to be, like, a beautifully sunny, warm weekend in April. There was no snow on the ground. It was Lies. Like, it was <laughs> like um, someone pulled the wool over Syracuse University, and I was like, this place isn't so bad. Like, this is... um, and I just... I knew that if I was actually going to try to be an actor, I never would have succeeded in a program where I was constantly going to compare myself to other people and worried I was going to get cut. So I withdrew myself from the waitlist from DePaul and I just decided to go to Syracuse. Um, I also actively hated like 90% of the people I went to high school with and I did not want to go to college in the state of Illinois like at all. I wanted to meet new people and like be, I wanted the experience of like really living on my own and anyway, so I went to Syracuse and... Honestly, it wasn't until after I graduated that I realized I had literally no desire to be an actor. And I think it's probably ultimately because there was always sort of a safety in 
I was always acting within the safety net of an academic institution um, because I never really did community theater and because I didn't do summer stock and any of that kind of stuff. As soon as that safety net was gone and I actually thought about what my day-to-day life would be like, what it would mean to be a, to try to become a working actor, I knew I would hate it. <laughs> I'm too type A. I need a schedule. I'm not, like, I just, I don't, I'm not a fly-by-the-seat-in-my-pants kind of person. I never have been. And so um, I went back to Chicago. I had to have some very unfortunate, like, ending ending up to be more invasive than I thought sinus surgery. And so while I was recovering from that, my friends that had already moved to New York, um, you know, would tell me about their days and the things that they were doing. And the more that I listened to them talk about waiting in line to get an audition or waiting in line to be seen for an audition or the more I knew that I could, I just couldn't do it. I didn't, I had no desire. So, but I wanted to move to New York. I knew if I stayed in Chicago, I'd never leave, which would not have been a bad thing, but I, all my friends were moving to New York. I wanted to have the experience of living in New York. So I told my parents I was going to move and my dad said, cool, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to wait tables until I figure it out because I had waited tables in college. And he said, you're not going to do that. So when you have a job, you can move to New York. So then I started to think, okay, well, what could, I, what could I do? What kind of job could I have? You need to play Aunt Eller in New York exactly. so that he would... Turning some butter in those opening, <laughs> that opening moment when the curtain, when the scrim like, parted <laughs> and me sitting with the churn, that's what did it. The farmer and the cowman should be friends. So I really thought about like, okay, I knew I wanted to be in the arts. That's like, I love the theater. I love seeing theater. So... I started to think about shows that I had, like, seen. Um, Oh, well, I should also say I had done, um, in between my years at Syracuse, one summer I interned at, like, a very small theater in the suburbs of Chicago. And another summer I interned at Victory Gardens Theater, which at the time was, like, a well-established theater but has since won the regional Tony and is, like, a prominent theater in Chicago. They had just acquired their big big storefront theater like the summer that I was there there was a lot happening for them um and I did a sort of choose your own adventure internship in their artistic office and dabbled like in literary and with artistic director and the associate and marketing and like everything and so I started to think about like the places I had quote-unquote worked to set to think about like what I could finagle into a career and watching the auditions for Victory Garden's upcoming season was sort of the thing that I remember pulling out of like all my experiences that was that was exciting and different. So then I started to look up either shows that I had seen in New York when I was at Syracuse if I like came to the city or shows that I that toured that had come through Chicago and saw that there was a thing listed as the casting director so I started looking up those people and like those companies and I realized that there were companies that did this. So, um, and a friend of mine who had graduated a semester early had done an internship at a casting office. And so I said, oh, an internship at a casting office. I wonder what that's like. It wasn't for him, but he said, if you, like, you might be, if you might be interested, I don't know, maybe something to try. 
So I sent my resume out to a bunch of literally mailed, right? Because this was like before you could like email a really, uh, God, I sound so old. It's like so no. crazy. <clears throat> you don't. If you're old, I'm old. And... I do though. I sound very old. I sent hard copy cover letter and resume to four or yeah, four casting offices in New York. Three of them asked to interview me. Wow. So I scheduled them all for a one weekend over the summer. I flew to New York. I did all the interviews. I was offered a position at all three. And I, uh, I moved to New York to work full-time, unpaid, for Tara Rubin, which my father said was enough of a job that I could move. And Well, and he probably is... Maybe unfamiliar with the name Tara Rubin, but is a huge name in New York and a huge casting office. I mean, when I also, when I was going to interview, he told me, like, I needed to wear, like, a lady suit, which I was like, no, Dad, if I wear a suit, they're actually going to, like, they will laugh at me. He was like, no, no, you need to, you need to look professional, you need to wear a suit. No. Okay, Dad, I'm not going to wear a suit. So I didn't wear a suit. Um, I wish you did. I wore, like, a really cute, like, summer dress, right? That was what was appropriate. Anyway, um... Yeah, and so, you know, I sort of told myself, like, in the in the back of my head, if I really don't like it or it's too office I can do something else. Like, I'm committing here for four months, whatever. And by the end of the first week, I was just like, yeah, this is clearly what I'm supposed to be doing. So, I was lucky in the sense that the thing that I, <clears throat> that I sort of gravitated to and remembered in all of my sort of professional internship experiences was the right thing. Um, and then I felt sort of followed that hunch. Um, so what brought you to David? So I worked for Tara, uh, mostly on musicals, which was really kind of not my wheelhouse. Like I love, love musicals, but like I'm not a singer and never tried to be. And But you were a ballet dancer. I was a ballet dancer, but I was definitely not a singer. In fact, when I played Ann Eller in Oklahoma, they had to change a lot of the music for me because I couldn't sing it. Uh, the Farmer and the Cowman. Like, a lot of things had to be changed for me because I couldn't sing it. The Farmer and the Cowman should be friends. There's a lot of talk singing done in my version of Ann Eller in Oklahoma. There's a lot of talk singing being done in New York these days. It's true. Maybe I really missed my calling, Um. So... As my internship was sort of wrapping up there, I, I didn't know for sure that I wanted to be a musical theater casting director. Um, and Tara had recommended that I um, meet a colleague of hers who also did theater casting but also television and film, and that was Cindy Tolan. Oh, wow. And I sort of felt like if someone would have offered me an assistant job, I would have taken it. But it, I didn't know that it, I, if I was offered it in an office that primarily did musical theater, if that was going to be the right fit for me. So I said, okay, I'll do another internship. I want to learn more. Like, but I'm going to only apply to internships where, I could be, where I'm going to be paid a stipend, right? Moving up mm-hmm. in the world. And that it, with offices that um, do other things besides theater. So... Tara told me, you got to meet Cindy Tolan. So I sent my stuff to Cindy's associate at the time. 
And then I saw a posting for what was then Melcap Casting on Playbill looking for an intern. And um, Mele at the time was working on Gossip Girl and Dave was doing a bunch of theater. So I went in to meet with both of them. And Dave and Mele actually ended up not hiring me. <gasps> um, I know. <laughs> Um, and Cindy did, which was an easy decision for me. And I went to work for Cindy and Adam Caldwell um, for about five months and basically worked on with them on the casting of the feature film Blue Valentine from beginning to end. <gasps> Saddest um, film. Very sad. Yeah. Um, the auditions for their daughter were heartbreaking. I bet. Um, but because I went on a it first was date just, to that film. Did you really? Yeah. Oh, God. What that's that? really depressing. It didn't work out. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Come here. Come here like this. Right here behind the heart. In front of the heart. Okay. I can't really sing. I have to sing goofy in order to sing. Like, I have to sing stupid. Okay? Okay. To this part. And if I were old, your heart last night, it's because I love you. Yeah, but because Cindy's office was just Cindy, Adam, and I, um, I, I was a huge part of the process. So, which included like, dri- the three of us driving to Scranton together to hold auditions in Scranton, where they were shooting the movie because Derek C. and France wanted authentic people, <laughs> all of authentic the parts, people, like people from Scranton. Like I remember <clears throat> a woman that we ended up casting her son was auditioning and we wanted her to audition and she was terrified and she ended up getting cast in the movie and not her son. <gasps> um, she like owned a local pizza parlor in Scranton. So I worked, I worked with Cindy and Adam on some other things too, but Blue Valentine was the big one. Um, and twice over the course of those five months, I got calls from David Melly's associate asking me if I had taken another job what my schedule was like, whatever. And I said, I'm still at Cindy Jones' office. I'm still at Cindy Jones' office. So the film was wrapping up and, um, you know, I was going to talk to Cindy about whether or not she thought there would be another opportunity for me because technically my internship was going to end. And right before, like, I, I don't know, like the week before I was sort of planning to talk to Cindy, I got a call from Dave that's 
basically said that he and Mallet were sort of looking to create, um, you know, that they didn't really have a casting assistant and that they were looking to take somebody on in that capacity uh, moving forward in their office because they were only, they had only been a company for about a year, a little less than a year. So long story short, I went in to meet with them and I ended up, I sort of had the option to stay on with Cindy and work as an assistant on, on her next film or go work for Dave and Malley as their casting assistant. And truthfully, and this is I, my like type A crazy planner brain, I knew that if I stayed with Cindy and I did whatever this job was, when that ended, I'd then be looking for another one. And with Dave and Malley, Granted, the future was uncertain, but there was certainty in the fact that they were hiring me in a full-time position. Um, so I, start, I went to work there. And um, the week before I started, their associate gave her two weeks' notice. So my first week, she basically trained me to do everything. And it was Dave and Melee and I and two part-time interns. So I was their assistant for about... Just like just under three years, and then Malay moved to Los Angeles. Um, she was having a baby, and she was relocating. And so Dave promoted me to be his associate, and it was just the two of us. And I was his associate for about two and a half, three years. Uh, but within that time, I slowly started to do some things on my own. I took over casting um, Ars Nova as one of our accounts, and I took over casting all of their readings during that time. Um, and uh, obviously with a company of two and an intern, there was just a lot more that fell to me more quickly, I think. So um, I, officially we changed my title within the office, um, almost three years ago now, but I was working as a casting director probably two years before that, um, but always as Dave's associate on, like, official Caproliotis casting projects that were not my own. So I had sort of, I was sort of on a fast track. Mm -hmm. Um. It sounds like you got up just on the job training. Yes. And truthfully the only way you can learn casting is on, you can't, it's very difficult to learn the art of casting outside of being in it. Uh -huh. um, so if there's someone listening to the podcast that is interested in casting or, or definitely has questions about it, is the best way to find an internship in casting? Yes. Are those mostly posted on Playbill? Yes. Um, and then just to, I guess you don't send a hard copy. You don't anymore. have to. Some people still do. Um, but everything is electronic. I mean, when I was first an intern at Tara's office, you couldn't submit electronically. So messengers would come. You'd release a breakdown to Breakdown Express. And messengers, every agency had a messenger. And they would bring hard copy pictures and resumes with like a typed cover letter with their submission. Wow. To the office. And we would, there were these, we had these big clear bins that were sorted by agency. And then we would go through the bins and pull out the people. Crazy. Um, so yeah, it's all pretty much electronic now, including interns. We're saving the rainforest now, it sounds like. We are. That's amazing. Um, yes, playbill.com, entertainmentcareers.net. Okay. I post there sometimes too. 
Um, yeah, and if you see that, or even if you don't see a posting and there's an office that you would really love to intern at, you can always call and say, are you looking for interns? Amazing. Sometimes just asking is yeah. probably the best thing. Yeah. Okay, I want to switch gears a little bit now and talk about the audition room, specifically actors and agents and everything. So um, typically you'll meet with a director or a producer and you'll find out what their vision is for the roles or what, what way they kind of want to go with them. Um, and then you will, uh, what do you do from there? Do you, you make lists? You send out breakdowns to mm-hmm. agents? Uh, you probably... you legally have to schedule EPAs mm-hmm. um, and tell me how you get a group of people together that you bring in the room for the director or the producers and the team like how many people do you get from agents or open calls and that that kind of thing so it's very specific to the project because there are so many different factors that we're working with um, depending on the medium of the project, who's involved, how much time we have, where it's being done. So, for example, let's say we're doing a commercial Broadway project, Mm -hmm. a new Broadway show. Um, After our initial conversation with the team, um, we will make idea lists. And now, which is sort of standard for any Broadway show, right? We're trying to get some ridiculous celebrity who probably has never done a play and doesn't belong on a stage to do a play and get on a stage. Right. So, um, our process for any Broadway project will usually start with that. Um, and that's really uh, a big part of where our creative aesthetic comes into play because we are now taking what we've heard on a call, what we hear being... Um, spoken about the characters, adjectives that the, the the director and the playwright will use to describe them. We are now, within whatever sort of parameters we're working with, we talk, we will discuss age, we'll discuss type, if people are related, do we need to believe that they're related, if this person is this person's son, how, what's the age difference? Um, and such a question that I've never thought of before, the breakdowns that we see when... We see for EPAs or your agent emails those those breakdowns. Are they written by the director or the casting director? Um, there, mm, anything that you see on Breakdown Express, at least in it's it probably depends on the office. Ninety five percent of the time they're written by us. Interesting. Um, and EPAs. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes depending on who we're working with, like they may already have one going internally, and then we edit them or we work together. Um, some of the off-Broadway companies we work with, we sort of toss ideas back and forth and write one that we're like everyone's happy with before the EPA goes out. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the time, we just write them ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we take whatever's given to us. If there's something in the script, like the playwright has written an initial little breakdown, we'll usually expand on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we write those. Um, so we'll make idea lists. We may go through months of making offers to ridiculous stars or whatever. Um, and then the next part in our process will be scheduling EPAs, which for a Broadway, Broadway show, uh, theatrical, no singing and dancing, is three full days. Once those are completed, then we can begin setting up agent appointments. Um, so usually once the EPA is posted, if we know we're going to be having auditions with the team, sometimes we'll have an EPA months in advance. 
just so we've had the EPA and we can begin the process and not know when we might have the team in the room. And for the EPAs, I know it probably varies for regional theater or Broadway. Who usually from your office is at the EPAs? So um, equity actually stipulates who's allowed to be in the room for an EPA. So for a Broadway EPA, it has to be a casting director. Mm-hmm. For um, depending on the theater's contract with equity for off-Broadway, it can be anyone who has um, creative authority, casting authority, pardon me, not creative, casting authority. So it can be anybody from our office, with the exception of an intern. Um, Our assistant, Joe, who's been there three years, absolutely has casting authority when he's running an EPA. Um, He screens people. He's part of the process. Um, So there are different stipulations. It's Mm -hmm. always someone from our office, and there are only three of us. So um, you got a one in three shot that you're going to get someone Mm -hmm. from our office. Um, And while we're on EPAs, I just want to ask something else. If, say, someone sees the EPA and they really like the things that your office works on, but they feel like they're not right for that show, for that uh, for that show you're specifically looking at for the EPA... Don't go. Don't go. Good to know. I say that wait for the thing because, you're right for. one, yes, wait for the thing you're right for, but two, and sort of more importantly, and any actor who is non-equity that is listening to this will hopefully say, preach Lauren or something after they hear it, is that we have the option to see non-equity actors if there, there is time. We always see non-equity actors if there is time. And nothing pisses me off more than an actor who's like, oh, I was just at the CPA that I was really right for down the hall, but I see that Cat Casting is doing this other play I'll just use that same monologue. Who cares? Like, there's got to be something for me in this play. And their equity, so they take an appointment. There they sign up. And now they've bumped someone who's actually very right, who's non-equity, that's been waiting for hours to be seen. And it drives me nuts. Um, I think it's a total... I think it's super disrespectful to the process. I think it's super disrespectful to other actors. Mm-hmm. And also to me. Mm-hmm. Um so, yes, wait for the thing that you actually know you can play and you're right for and go in for those. Mm-hmm. And then after the EPAs, you'll release the breakdown to agents. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how do you, do you, do you work with some agents? Do you have an aesthetic towards certain agents? Do you, or do you, how do you decide who who's brought in um, based on the submissions? I mean, I know I've seen before on Actors Access, you get a small thumbnail of a bunch of headshots from actors. Mm-hmm. Um, do you like scroll through the headshots and, and whoever looks right? And then you look at their resume. I mean, talk about that a little so bit. So I'm sure it's different for everybody. Um, once we release an agent breakdown, Dave and I usually do two things simultaneously, which is that we will go back to those idealists we've made And we'll start pulling out actors from those idealists that we think would come in an audition. Mm -hmm. And we'll usually start sending the script to those actors if we know we're going to have auditions while we also go through the breakdown. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we are calling actors in, it's generated from our own ideas and also ideas that are provided to us by agents and managers and actors self-submitting. And not to go back to EPAs, but a lot of people ask, ask me about it, but... 
Do you I cast people from EPAs? Yes, yes. yes. Or how often I do you bring people I cast actors on Broadway from EPAs. That's incredible. It depends on the project, right? There are some times where we hold EPAs for a show and we never have auditions. Mm-hmm. We end up casting every single role off offers. Mm-hmm. People who come into EPAs that are right for the roles will always be, in our office at least, always be separated from a pile, right? Um, There are a lot of people that come to EPAs that are either wrong for the show, that aren't very good, that don't showcase themselves well, whatever the case may be, that uh, I may not hold on to that day. I may not feel that that I was compelled by them, that I think they're right for anything that's in our genre, that there may be a really classically trained actor that has an entire resume of Shakespeare that I didn't feel translated well into contemporary today, whatever the case may be. If we like you and you're right for the part, we will usually call you into screen for us. Mm-hmm. If we're going to be auditioning for the show, almost always we will bring people in from the EPA to come in and screen for us that we don't know. Sometimes actors we know come into the EPA and we go, Oh gosh, I wouldn't have thought of them. And we remember to bring them in an audition. Um, it's, it's specific to the project. We, we cast a show on Broadway last season and out of 23 parts, we auditioned for two and we knew who 90% of the actors that were going to be cast were going to be by the time we had the EPAs. However, one of the roles required, um, an actor to be able to play the banjo. And at the same time that we were casting that show, I was casting a two-hander, Um, and the male actor needed to be able to play the guitar. And I ended up calling in about a dozen guys from that EPA to come in for me for a different show. Some of who, one of whom was on the final, like in the final mix for the role. So you can never know. If you go in for an EPA that you're really right for and that you're appropriate for, the chances of casting remembering you and holding on to you are a lot higher than if you see that an EPA is down the hall and you walk in the room with material that's inappropriate and you're not really right for anything on the breakdown. Yeah. I'm really stuck on EPAs in this moment because I have one more question about them. Yeah. So say you're an actor and you have a pretty great agent and maybe you have a relationship with this casting office, um, but the EPAs are always, like you said, sometimes months ahead of time and you don't know if you're going to get brought in for that project and it's something you really want to do. Obviously, I'm an actor. I'm going to email my agent and be like, this is really important to me. I really want to get into this. How does the actor know to, should the actor go to the EPA anyway just to like make sure they're seen? It's an individual question and I feel like a lot of different casting directors would answer this in, in very different ways. I, if I know you really well Mm -hmm. and I have a relationship with you. And what does that, what does that mean? Like you've seen, you've called in the same actor a few times. If you've auditioned for me at least three times Uh for three different projects, um, I don't need to see you do a monologue. Right. I just don't need to. I'm, I'm going to know whether or not you're right. Mm -hmm. And if your agent submits you or push calls and says, Robbie's really interested in this role. Do you think he's right for it? Right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to have an opinion on that. Mm-hmm. Going and doing a monologue for me at the EPA is not going to change whether or not I think you're right for the part. Right. So I would say if you feel like the office knows you well enough to know if you're right, you don't need to go to the EPA. Cool. 
Um, and okay, let's just talk about preparation. So say you get, you come in for the appointment, say it's a pre-screen or say it's, you know, the beginning with just you and the director before everybody else kind of is brought in and you know what I'm talking about, the producers and stuff. Um, you know, do you want the actor to be memorized? Is, is memorize, is memorization important? Do you, how important do you think, you know, it's obviously a personal matter with the actor, but uh, how do you feel about coachings or should actors, if they're being brought in for a really big appointment, do you suggest they do a coaching? Do you suggest that they're memorized for the first audition or, or not? So <clears throat> this is a hot topic actually amongst casting directors. I used to teach a class with two casting directors and we all had drastically different opinions about being memorized versus not. I don't personally care. What I will say is I have observed being in the room with a team, not with a team, with multiple teams, that actors who are more familiar with their material are a lot more free with it. Um, and by that I mean when you're not completely bound to the page and buried in it, you have more freedom to act. And if a director gives you an adjustment or multiple adjustments or wants to talk to you about the play, the more prepared and familiar you are with the material, usually the easier it will be for you to make an adjustment. Mm -hmm. um, do I expect you're going to come in performance ready for an audition? No, it's an audition. But the more familiar you are, the more we can see what your take on the character is, the more lived in it feels for you, usually the more successful the audition is, I have found, just in, in, in observing. Mm -hmm. Now, if you get the sides 24 hours in advance, you're not going to be memorized. Mm -hmm. It's Unless you have a photographic memory, it's not going to happen. And there is a very... Uh, that, is, um, that is something that everyone on the team is made aware of in advance. That is something that you have to trust the casting director is going to tell the team if you're coming in for the team. If you're coming in just for me and I've given you the sides... I mean, the thing, the thing as, again, as an actor you have to remember is the person in the room that is on your side is the casting director. If you're late, I already know. If you're sick, I know. If you're stuck on the subway, I know. If you got the sides the night before, it's because I sent them to you the night before. So there's, there's a, a very realistic understanding of what your given circumstances are before you're walking into the room, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to trust that the casting director is going to take care of you with, if, it's, if you're coming in for the team or that the casting director is gonna have compassion and understand what your potential circumstances are before you walk into the room. And then there was, you asked another part of that question. Coachings. Oh, coachings. That's also a very individual thing. What I will say is, um, I'm, obviously I'm a little biased because I also coach. Um, I think that, what you want to say, how good of a coach I am. She's the best coach. Well, actually, the first job that I coached Robbie for, he booked. So. That's true. But what I will say is, uh, in your own preparation, you can reach a certain point where you sort of max out what you can do for yourself. And if you're the kind of actor that can benefit from somebody else watching you with a fresh set of eyes and giving you, picking out moments or giving you new ideas, then it's absolutely, absolutely worth worth being coached. I think there are a lot of acting coaches that are really bad. I think there are a lot of acting coaches that don't know um, enough about what's happening in a room to give you helpful advice. And I think sometimes the trap of uh, 
being coached is that that's what happens. Then you're giving a coached audition as opposed to an authentic audition. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a, it's a very individual thing. Some people don't need it and don't care and it doesn't matter. And some people uh, having somebody that isn't your roommate, your boyfriend, your like your scene partner from college watching you work um, that can can just expand the possibilities of what you can do with the role before you walk in the room. Um, so it's a totally individual choice. I, I, I think if you have a coach that really gets you, that understands like either where your weaknesses are or can help you deepen moments or whatever, mm-hmm. um, I'm getting a little inarticulate, but I think if you, if you no, have a person that, that knows your work and knows how to help craft moments uh, that you may not have thought of yourself or think of things in a different way, it's absolutely worth it. Um, if you if you go coach with somebody and you and anything feels inorganic or not right, then they're not the right person for you. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Um, we are running out of time, but the last thing or one of the last things I want to ask you about um, is feedback. So a lot of actors obviously want to know why they didn't get a job or, or sure. why they didn't get a callback or anything. And um, I just, uh, from my experience, it's if you get very close to a role or you know that you're in the final callbacks and you know that it's down to a few people, you're going to email your representation or call them and say, is there any way we can get feedback? Sure. Sometimes you get feedback after an initial audition or you, or, and I just wanted you to know, uh, or I wanted to know, when is it appropriate for someone to either ask their agent or if they were brought in through an EPA or a self-submit, when is it appropriate to ask for feedback and how you navigate that? I think as an actor, you can always feel like you can ask for feedback. Um, if that's, that's part of your process and that's something you need, you should always feel like you can ask for it. You may not always get it or it may not be the feedback you want. But to me... I mean, I don't know. I'm not an actor, so it's hard for me to say, but I think part of the reason that I didn't want to be an actor was because there's so much that's out of your control, mm-hmm. and I'm a control freak. Um, but you have to be your own advocate, and mm-hmm. part of that is if you want to know something, you know, there's a difference between saying, can I get feedback for that? I felt like it re- went really well, so I'm just curious to know why I didn't get a call back. Um... There's a difference between that and every audition you go on needing feedback for, right? Mm -hmm. There are times where an actor will bomb for me. And if an agent asks for that feedback, I will give that. Um, There there have been a few, not a lot, a few actors over the many years that I have been in casting that I won't see anymore. And um, their representation, some of them have since left the business, but their representation will say, uh, you know, would you see so-and-so? And And I've said, I I actually am not going to bring him in anymore because he's never prepared. She's never prepared. Um, They have a blasé attitude about what's happening in the room. I'm not really sure they want to be here. They're acting like they don't, like they didn't read the play, that they don't know what's going on. 
So you can't come over here because the microphone's over here, okay? You have to stay with Stat me. has things to say. She has a toothbrush in her mouth. She's ready for bed. <laughs> Truly, she'll put this in her mouth when she's ready for bed. I know. Can I have it? Can I have it? Do you want to? She's like, oh, thank you. Um, but those, those are usually few and far between. The other thing I will say about feedback is if you, there's so much that goes in to the final casting decision that will always be out of your control as an actor. And a lot of times that feedback is not helpful to you, right? Sometimes you really just did a great job and it's not going any further. Sometimes it's, you did a really great job, we cast someone who's a little bit taller or pairs a little bit more squarely with someone else. And sometimes as an actor, I feel like when I get that feedback, it is sometimes important because you feel like, great, I did what I can do. Sure. And, and it was out of my hands. Yeah. And then sometimes when you don't get a job, you know, that day you're like, oh, my callback was great. And then two days later, you're like, oh, but that's what I did that messed it up. Or I didn't do this that day. Or I dropped that line. You know, so sometimes it is helpful to hear, I guess, as an actor, like, they were great. It just, we did, we went a different way. You know what I mean? I think, I, I truly believe as an actor, you have to be an advocate for yourself, first and foremost and always. So if you know that you are going to lose sleep and go crazy, if you don't know why you didn't get a job, ask for feedback. Mm -hmm. If you can let it go and you don't give a shit and you're going to move on to the next thing, maybe you don't need it. Maybe it's not important. There's no, to me, if there, if you get a benefit and there's a, and, and it helps you personally, professionally move on with your day, move on with your career to have feedback, you ask for it. I mean, at the end of the day, it sounds so dumb, but it's to me, Actors are most successful when they're smart. Read the play that comes with the... Um, so you can't sit over here. Read the play that was sent with your sides. Mm -hmm. Don't be the asshole that has to say to a director when they say, oh, did you read the play? And you go, I didn't really have time. Right? Mm -hmm. How can anyone give you an adjustment if you haven't read the play? And you have no context for what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So... I already am off on a tangent and I actually forgot what my point, the point was. Feedback. Oh, just, well, yeah, feedback, but <laughs> we're so far past yeah. that now. Um, just about being, being smart and making smart choices. There's an easy way to get the answer to almost anything that doesn't bother anyone, that's professional, that's quick, that will probably give you peace of mind, help you make a decision, whatever the case may be. Um... And so the fear that you can't ask for things that you might need because you're going to bother the casting director or you're going to annoy someone. Um, I mean, listen, some casting directors are assholes. Mm -hmm. Like, I've, I've heard that, not about specific people, but people have said to me that I'm a very nice casting director. To me, that is part and parcel to what I do, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm not creating a room that feels safe and open for an actor to work in, I'm setting them up to fail, I believe. Mm -hmm. But I understand that that may not be the case with everyone. So again, that's also being smart about who you're asking for feedback from. 
is it a casting director that's going to be annoyed by it? Or is it a casting director that seemed to be in a good mood and had a good attitude about your audition that probably will give you feedback that will be helpful? Mm-hmm. Um, that was a really long-winded answer to No, that. but everything you said I brought said a full was, circle back no, for feedback. Yes, no, it was so good. And <laughs> something that I want to know and I think other people are going to want to know. So, okay, this is just the last... The well, I mean, this is this is always fun for me. Like, is there an audition or like someone? Is there a cool audition story you have that you can kind oh of think God, of? Oh my God, Robbie, of like, I have so many. Or like, think of one that's like just super special or super unique. Or like, someone maybe did an actor did something that got them the job. Or or, you know, I, I mean, there are. Did honestly, you discover someone famous? Uh, I don't know, just something that just no, something I don't think special. I've, I've discovered anyone famous. I mean, there are so many. There are so I've had so many of those moments, and truthfully, that's part of why I do what I do. Like being able to give an actor their equity card, or their first professional job, or their Broadway debut, or all of that. Like those are huge. Um, those are huge pivotal moments in any actor's career and life. And for me to be associated in that memory for them in any way, for me, is so, like, personally rewarding and gratifying. Um, I mean, there was an actor who came to the very first open call for the Tupac musical, Holler If You Hear Me, that we did on Broadway. Now, we developed that show over three years before it came to Broadway. And Dave and I did two open calls and the very first one, people came from all over the country. Like, we saw a lot of Tupac impersonators. Like, there were, like, 600 people. We had to turn people away. And then a young actor who we had never met came in and sang a song. And Dave and I, like, found him really charming and sweet and personable. And we brought him back in to audition for us, to come in and screen for us from that open call. And... Long story short, he uh, we ended up casting him in the first workshop that we did. And through every workshop and iteration of this show, they kept him and he made his Broadway debut in the show. And seeing him at the at the party on opening night, I mean, he he had tears in his eyes because I, I'm sure he did not walk into an open call three and a half years prior and think that that moment would lead to ultimately being on a Broadway stage. So it's, well, I mean, like there are a lot and of it moments was an open like call. that. It was an open call, was not even an EPA. It was literally an open call. So there are moments like that, of course, that are forever, forever. I mean, I will have, I will cherish those memories forever. But I've also had, like, I mean, I've had crate, like, I had an actor do a monologue to a wall and then throw confetti on me and say, happy fucking birthday <laughs> when it wasn't my birthday and had nothing to do with his monologue and then leave at an EPA. No, this actor on their resume, like, what did it say? Like, party oh, clown. God, I don't even remember. No, truly, he did a monologue to the wall. Employed at Chuck E. Cheese. To, like... A girl or somebody was about getting ready, and then he finished the monologue, and he walked up to the table. It was just me in the room, and he put his hands in his pockets, and he said to me, oh, yeah, and happy fucking birthday, and pulled his hands out of his pockets and threw confetti all over me and the table. 
and walked out. Okay, that's terrifying because what if he threw like anthrax on you or something? I don't know, Robbie. Crazy <laughs> things have happened in EPAs. I <sighs> and my monitor got in a fight with an actor in the room once. What? He had to be escorted out of the building. I mean, you name it, and it's probably happened to me. Um, those are more infamous audition memories. I mean, there are there. Are, I don't want to name specific names, but like there have. I remember specifically an actor walking in the room for. Um, a show at uh, a play of Kira Hudas um, at Second Stage, and an actress came in for a role, and it was truly like, I mean, I'll just never forget it because it was just magic. Like I can't even describe what happened. Sorry, was this it like was an, just, an appointment? It was an appointment with the and team. And did you know the actor before? We knew the actor very well. Um, she's got a little bit of notoriety, um, and she came into audition, and it was, this was the New York premiere of this play, and it was, it was just, it was just magic. It was just, she finished the scene, and it was a full team, and no one could talk. It was just like, suddenly this character walked in the room and was in front of us. And we offered her the part, and then she ended up having to turn it down because oh, no. she was doing a movie. We hired another actress who pulled out the Friday before rehearsal started, and then it miraculously happened that this first actress, her movie got pushed, and she was available, and she jumped in three days later <gasps> and was incredible in the, in the production. So things like that, I remember. I mean, That's I've had a lot of really... That sounds incredible. Yeah. I mean, like... To me, listening, it sounds like providing incredible opportunity and in most cases, life-changing opportunities sometimes, to yeah. artists yeah. and giving them that platform and sometimes the financial means to continue to do what they do. And more than that, it's about like, yes, you're doing the right thing. I mean, sometimes whether you're an actor or a painter or whatever, sometimes just someone saying Yes, keep yeah. doing this mm -hmm. or, you know, or cultivating you or keep bringing you back is just is so important. So it must be such a rewarding part of what you get to do. Yeah. When we get to cast people that we love that are good people, in addition to being good actors, it's it's a it's a really it's a very rewarding feeling. Um, you know, people a lot of teams we work with say, well, are they going to accept our offer or whatever? And I think it's easy to forget because sometimes actors have multiple opportunities at the same time or whatever that actors want to work. Like getting an offer is a really big deal and it's really exciting. Mm -hmm. um, Stout, you are out of control right now. You're hijacking this podcast and I don't think she wants you appreciate back. It. She wants you back. Do and... you want to brush your teeth? Um, I mean, I could tell you so many other stories. Yeah. Ridiculous I bet. I things, bet. hilarious things involving the Olsen twins, but really that's <laughs> neither here nor there. And we will conclude <laughs> this podcast with the Olsen twins <sighs> and we'll have to have you back sometime to tell us yeah. all about it. Part two. We'll include the Olsen twins. Amazing. Lauren, thank you so much. This is incredible. You're so and welcome. if people listening appreciate this as much as I have in this moment, like it will be a success so thank you Great. so much you're welcome 
For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit thebreakdownpodcast.com and connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Facebook and Instagram at The Breakdown with Robbie. And again, if you like what you heard, help spread the word and make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for another episode of The Breakdown. Ah!